Glad you're joining us on this Memorial Day weekend. You know, here in the United States, Memorial Day is a time when we remember. We remember those who have given their lives so that you and I can have so many of the freedoms that we honestly take for granted so often. And I thought before we dove into the teaching of God's Word today, it might be just appropriate for us just to take a moment uh, and give thanks. Uh, Thanks to God and a a thankful remembrance of those who have given their lives. So would you join me before we dive in and pray today? Father, we do thank you for all of the freedoms that we enjoy, and we acknowledge that they are are God-given. We also know that they have been defended through the years by many, many, many men and women who have given their lives. And so, Father, today we say thank you to you, And we want to give honor and gratitude to them. We pray, Father, that you would comfort their families, that you would strengthen them, that you would guide them. And Father, on this particular Memorial Day weekend, as we're still in the midst of this crazy time, we pray for those who are on the front lines. Those who are on the front lines of of protecting life and helping us to move forward to full expression of the freedoms we enjoy. Father, would you protect those on the front line? Would you watch over their families? Would you give great wisdom to those who are making decisions at all levels of government, of education, of organizations, businesses, churches? Uh, Father, would you guide us through this time? Father, thank you that we have these moments to share together in your presence. Thank you for those who have given their lives to help make it so. We remember them as we give thanks to you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. You know, you think about death, those who have given their lives on Memorial Day weekend. You think about the numbers of, that we keep seeing day after day, and they're, they're staggering to think about. Just from the the COVID-19, we're approaching 100,000 deaths in the United States. We're already over 300,000 deaths worldwide. But to put that in, in some sort of perspective, every single day, before there was the COVID-19, every single day, worldwide, 150,000 people died every single day. In the United States of America alone, on an average day, over 7,500 people will die. Tim Keller, on his book On Death, writes these words about death. Death, he says, is the great interruption, tearing loved ones away from us and us from them. Death is the great schism ripping apart the material and the immaterial parts of our being and sundering a whole person who was never meant to be disembodied, even for a moment. Death is the great insult because it reminds us, as Shakespeare said, that we are worm food. Death is hideous and frightening and cruel and unusual, and it's not the way that life is supposed to be, and that our grief in the face of death acknowledges that. Death is our great enemy more than anything. It makes a claim on each and every one of us, pursuing us relentlessly through all of our days. Modern people write and talk endlessly about love, especially romantic love, which eludes many. 
but no one can avoid death. It's been said that all the wars and all the plagues have never raised the death toll. It has always been one, one death for each and every person. And yet we seem far less prepared for it than our ancestors. And he asked, why is that? Pulitzer Prize winning author William Saron was dying of cancer. And in his hospital room in May of 1981, he picked up the phone and he called an Associated Press reporter. And in that conversation, he said, everybody has to die, but I always believed I was going to be the exception. Then he asked, now what? Now what? Scripture tells us that it is appointed unto human beings to die once and then comes judgment. And there are no exceptions. The question when we face our fear of death is now what? And so I ask you today, what are you going to do with death? We we can try to avoid it. We can try to deny it. We can try to uh, keep our youthful appearance. But all of us are going to deal with the reality of death. I want to take you to a part of Scripture John's gospel, John chapter 14. And in John chapter 14, this is in the upper room and Jesus has uh, been uh, pouring into the lives of his disciples and he's begun to tell them more and more clearly in these recent days leading up to these moments about the reality of his coming death. And he's talked to them now about uh, the betrayer. He's talked to them about Peter's denial. He's talked to them clearly about his death. And there's, a, there's an uneasiness, there's a heaviness that hangs over that room. And in the midst of all of those feelings, Jesus speaks these words. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I want you to see as Jesus is speaking to these disciples about the inevitability and how you face death, how you overcome a troubled heart, he gives to them some things. He gives to them first a command. Let not your heart be troubled. Make a decision, uh, make a, a focused choice. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live with a troubled heart. Let not your heart be troubled. And then he gives to them a call. You believe 
believe in God, believe also in me. This is not just an intellectual assent, but this is a personal trust, a relational trust. Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in his provision that he was getting ready to fulfill through his crucifixion, through his burial, through his resurrection. He said, place your trust not in your morality or your religion or your even your ability to put off death, but place your trust fully and completely in me. And then he gives to them a, a word picture. He says, I go and prepare a place for you. He said, in my father's house, there's, there's all of these rooms. He, he says, this is, a, this is a place of abiding. It literally is a, a dwelling place that I am going to prepare a dwelling place for you, a place where you will live forever. And he casts that picture and, and he talks about where he is going. And that raises this, this, this promise that where I am, there you also will be. And he talks about that I'm going to prepare a place, but I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And so he gives him this incredible promise, but that immediately raises the question that Thomas voiced for, for the group. We don't know where you're going. We don't know how to get there. And then Jesus gives him the answer. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, the way is not a principle. It's not a path, but it's a person. It's, it's a person and a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, a relationship that he makes possible by well, the life that he lived, the death that he died, the, the God's, the Father's seal of approval on all that he did through the resurrection and his promise to go and prepare a place for us and someday to come and take us back unto himself. But this also says that the, the gospel by its very nature is Exclusive, the exclusive nature of the gospel. When Jesus was teaching in Matthew 7, he said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Sometimes we can assume in our culture that kind of in the end, everybody goes to heaven, everybody goes to paradise or, or whatever language somebody might use. But Jesus says, no, it's a narrow way. It's a narrow gate. But the way is a person, the person of Jesus Christ. Bob Russell is right, I think. He said, this text is going to become more and more unpopular in the years ahead because it speaks to an exclusive call. And not, not because uh, some people are better than others, but because it, it is all centered upon God's grace, the good news of what God has done for us that we could have never done for ourselves in Jesus Christ. And that is our hope. 
That is how we face our fear of death. We do so trusting in the hope and the provision of Jesus Christ. Paul was writing to some believers in Thessalonica, excuse me, the letter of Thessalonians. And he, he said to them that they were worried about some of their loved ones who had died and died trusting in faith in the Lord, but they had all of these questions that sometimes come to all of us along the way. And this is part of what he wrote to them. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. We don't want you to be uninformed about those who have died. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. How do we face our fear of death? We grieve because death is an enemy. Death rips apart that which was never intended to rip apart. God, death separates us temporarily from our loved ones. It is horrible. It is, it is atrocious. It is a thing that was not part of God's original creation design. We grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We acknowledge the horrific impact of death and we feel the weight of that. But in the midst of that, we have a hope because death doesn't have the last word because Jesus had the last word because he died so that you and I might be able to live. He went to prepare a place for us and he is coming again to take us to himself. And so I want us to spend just a few moments today just looking at what the Bible says about this place that's being prepared for those who are in Jesus Christ. And we're just going to kind of run through some, some topics very, very quickly. I just want to give you a foretaste, if I can, of what's ahead. What is this place that's being prepared for us. It is a place, first of all, the scripture says of rejoicing, of rejoicing. Psalm says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, in his presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There is a fullness of joy in his presence like we have never known or experienced yet in our life. C.S. Lewis put it this way, our father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. I want you to think about it this way. Think about those things that bring joy to your life. Uh, those activities or, or maybe those places or, or those moments or those relationships that bring such joy to your life. They are an incredible gift from God, but they were never intended to be the final destination. Every joy that I experience, every joy that you experience in this life is a signpost. It is to point us forward, to point us toward home, to the joy that we will experience in fullness in his presence. That prepared place is a place of rejoicing, but it's also a place of reunion, a place of reunion. Paul continued to write to those Thessalonian believers, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord 
that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There is, and gosh, we could go so deep on any of these passages, but I just want you to see today that this place is a place not only of rejoicing in the fullness of his presence, but there is a reunion. We are together with the Lord, but we are together with other believers, and we will always together be with the Lord. It is a place of the grandest of family reunions, Uh, but the scripture also tells us This place that is being prepared for us is a place of relief, is a place of relief. Let me give you a couple of glimpses. Revelation 21, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And then hear this next part. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There is this place of of great relief. All of the things that sin has wrought in our lives, death and suffering and pain and tears will be no more. Uh, On a personal level, uh, Paul talks about the fact that while we're still living, we experience pain, right? While we are still in this tent, we groan. I'm still in this body, in this world that is marred and scarred by sin. We groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. That there is this relief that is coming. We are going to have this burden of sin, this burden of, of all of the effects of sin released. We're going to be given a brand new life. And that leads not only to relief, but to renewal. This prepared place is going to be a place of renewal. Again, let's look at Revelation 21, John's vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And again, we don't have time to go into great, great detail today, but understand some folks say, well, I'm going to be in heaven. Well, actually, it's even more than that. There's a new heaven. There's a new earth. All of creation will be remade. I tend to think it's going to be returned to God's original perfect, good creation design. And we have further in that chapter of this this proclamation. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And here's this, I I begin to think about that. I begin to think about just the awesomeness of God's creation and even the awesomeness of the human body. And to think as all-inspiring as a mountain or a beach or the ocean or, or, or the colors or the animals, the complexity of the human body, all of those things. 
that in this renewal of all creation, it is going to be so much more. It is going to be mind-blowing for us. So every time I I have kind of my breath taken away by something beautiful or something all-inspiring in God's creation or in another person, uh, to know that that's just a foretaste, it's just a sample of what is yet to come in this renewal. But one more thing I want to tell you about this place that's being prepared, and that is it's a place of reward. It's a place of reward. Again, I just uh, going back to Revelation chapter 22. Behold, Jesus says, I am coming, exactly what he told them in John 14. I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. It is a place of celebration. It is a place of, of reward, uh, of certainly rewards of his grace. Uh, but we, we experience the, those things that we felt like we sacrificed. Maybe those things we felt like nobody noticed and was never rewarded. The Father says, I notice and I will reward. The Lord Jesus Christ will notice and will reward and will celebrate all of those things. Nothing that I feel like I have sacrificed, nothing that I feel like I have lost will be unnoticed along the way. George Herbert wrote, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel makes him just a gardener. Death used to be able to crush us, but now all death can do is plant us in God's soil so that we become something extraordinary. That's the place that is being prepared for us. Death plants us in God's soil and he awakens us to, he brings us into this dwelling that is extraordinary beyond our ability to comprehend. But I want you to understand something. When we talk about facing our fear of death, it's not just about the the, the sweet by and by, but Facing our death, facing our death with the promises of the gospel is to impact our lives right here and right now. It is to make a difference in the way that I live. It's been said that I, in so many ways, that I am not really prepared to live until I'm really prepared to die. It is only when I, when I have faced the reality of death and locked in to the promises of the gospel that I then am free to really live life as God desires and designed it to be. I was reading something earlier this week from uh, the Voice of the Martyrs, an organization that that tracks uh, suffering Christians all across the world and particularly those who are under heavy persecution. And I read a quote from a a young believer in in Yemen. uh, His name is uh, Ibrahim. And Abraham talked about living under the, the heavy burden of persecution and the threat of death. And here are his words. I was tired of fear. And I ask myself a question. If I believe in Jesus and this is true and he grants me eternity, why should I fear? So if they came then to kill me, I was ready to say, Welcome. 
and God changed my extreme fear to extreme boldness. That's what happens when we lock in to the sure promises of God. It's not just about uh, the, the next life, but it is about this life. It is about right here, right now. And God wants to transform extreme fear to extreme boldness, to live boldly for him. And so let me just, just throw out four ways that this hope impacts my life and your life right here, right now. And the first is walking in holiness. When we truly understand uh, the life as it's designed, life that is eternal, uh, it begins to impact the way that I live my life right here and right now. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which the righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. When I truly understand eternity, when I truly understand the place that is being prepared for me, it motivates me, it empowers me to live a life of holiness and godliness because I know every moment matters. It matters not just here and now, but it matters for all eternity. And I begin to walk toward that life that he's calling me, a life wholly submitted to him, wholly over overwhelmed by a love for him and for others. And so I walk in holiness, but not only a walking in holiness, uh, but a sure grasp of this promise gives me an endurance in suffering because we all experience suffering in this life because that's what sin does. It brings suffering into our lives personally, into our families, into our communities, our culture, our entire world. But we have an endurance because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. <laughs> Our whole perspective changes. It's not that we suffer less, but we suffer differently. We suffer now with an enduring hope. We suffer now, even if we suffer in our body, even if we suffer on the outside, even if our life is taken from us, we know that there is something happening inside. We are being renewed moment by moment, day by day. And that hope of eternity impacts every area of our life, including the way that we use our stuff. And it leads to a wise use of our finances. We understand that the, the pleasures of this moment is not what it really is all about. And so Jesus in his teaching said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And as I've taught from this passage through the years, talked about the fact that that our our finances, our our balance sheet, our credit card statements, uh, uh, our checking account, it it reveals, it, it reveals our heart and it redirects our heart. It reveals what we truly value and what we truly treasure. We can use all the language. We can sing all the right songs. uh, But in black and white, our finances say, this is what I value. This is what I truly treasure. But this is also what Jesus said. When I begin to use my finances in light of eternity, it makes eternity more real. It not only reveals my heart, but it begins to redirect my heart. And more and more, my heart follows my finances, and I live in light of eternity. The prepared place and the promise of it gives me wise use of my finances. But one more thing I'll mention today, and that is it creates a motivation for evangelism a motivation for evangelism. When I stop and think about the reality of of forever, I begin to realize that everyone is going to spend forever somewhere. Jesus said everyone's going to spend forever in a very real place called heaven or a very real place called hell. Everyone is going to spend forever somewhere. And when that begins to hit us, the message of the gospel takes on a renewed urgency, particularly for our our loved ones and friends. Jesus said, we read this earlier, Thomas said, how do you get there? What's the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When that begins to grip not only us intellectually, but it begins to grip our hearts, we understand we want to share this message. We want to tell people about Jesus. The most loving thing I could do for another human being is to introduce them to the grace of God that comes through Jesus Christ that will impact their life, not just for this moment, but for all eternity. And the New Testament church understood this. So they began to proclaim that message. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There are not many paths to God. There is one person, and that is Jesus Christ. So I want you to imagine for a moment that you now had in your possession the cure for COVID-19. The cure, the vaccine, whatever you want to call it. Now, can you imagine what you would do at that moment? Can you imagine, would you just kind of sit back and say, well, I'm just going to live a good virus-free life. And if anybody asks me, I'll tell them how they can get a virus-free life. 
No, no, you wouldn't do that. You, you would begin urgently, intentionally, uh, prayerfully, any way you could. You'd start with your loved ones. You'd start with your family. You'd start with your friends. And you would tell them, I, I don't know how I did it, but I found the cure. I stumbled across the cure. Here, take this. You would realize that the whole world needs to hear this. They need to have access to this. But that's too much for you to do. So you would begin to intentionally partner with other people to take that good news of this cure of this vaccine to all of the world. <laughs> there is salvation in no one else, no other cure. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Everybody's going to spend forever somewhere. And you and I have been entrusted with the greatest news of all, that Jesus Christ came and did for us what we could not do for ourselves, that he lived the life that we were designed to live and didn't live. He died the death you and I deserved to die. He was buried. He was resurrected. He has ascended to the Father, preparing a place for us, and he's coming again to receive us unto himself. And that can be anybody's experience if they will turn from their sin and place their faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. And I urge you today, if you have never done that, to call out to God right now. Reach out to us here at the First Baptist family. Reach out to us on social media. Reach out to us uh, through our website. Pick up a phone. We want to celebrate with you. We want to share with you. If you have questions, we want to continue that conversation with you. We want you to know the only hope, the only way to face death, the only way to face life, and that is connected to Jesus Christ. And if you have that as a reality in your life, then share it. Share it prayerfully. Share it lovingly. Share it intentionally. Share it passionately. Because you have the cure. You have the hope that's only found in Jesus Christ. At the end of his classic book, The Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens has one of the main characters, a man by the name of Sidney Carton. He gets into a dungeon and he switched places with a man who he looks very much like, Charles Darnay, who is about to be killed by the guillotine. And Charles has a wife and a child and Sidney takes his place awaiting execution. He's going to die so that another might be saved. And there are a bunch of other prisoners that are in that, that same situation. And one of them is a, a seamstress. And she comes up to him and she too is waiting to be executed. And she sees this man that at first she thinks is Charles Darnay. But the closer she looks, she realizes that's not him. And, and she gets closer and closer. And her eyes suddenly get big. And she says, are you dying for him? In his place, they go, shh, yes, yes, for him and his wife and his child. And then she says, 
something like this to paraphrase. Mr. Stranger, I don't think I can face my own death. But maybe, maybe if I hold the hand of someone as brave as you, I'll be able to do it. And he takes her hand and they go together to their death. Her hand in his. She was transformed and she was strengthened by this substitutionary sacrifice, even though it wasn't for her personally. How much more can you and I be transformed and strengthened as we face the reality of death if we place our hand in the hand of the one who died for us so that we might live forever? How do you face your fear of death? You grieve because it is so atrocious. But you do not grieve as those who have no hope because your hope is you have placed your life in the hand of Jesus Christ who died and is now preparing a place for you. And as you place your trust and faith in him, he will receive you unto himself. Let's pray together, please. Oh, Father, thank you that a virus doesn't have the last word, disease doesn't have the last word, death doesn't have the last word because Jesus Christ had the last word through the cross and through the empty tomb. The one who is coming again has declared that he has prepared a place for us and it is available to any of us as we place our faith and trust in you. Father, I pray that as we place our life in your hands, that you would help us to live boldly and passionately for you and with you all the days of our earthly journey, knowing that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We pray this now together in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Message doesn't become powerful until it becomes personal. And so I want to leave you with some questions. Do you know, as you're hearing my words today, do you know for certain that you have eternal life and that you'll go to heaven when you die? That you have a place secure being prepared by Jesus Christ? If there's any hesitation about that, any question about that, please reach out to us. We would love to continue this conversation with you. As you think about that, what difference is the fact that this brief earthly life is preparation for eternity made in your life in the past seven days? I mean, has has the reality of eternity impacted the way that you have lived in the past seven days? What might God be saying to you in that? And what do you sense that God might be calling you to adjust in your life right now in light of eternity? Maybe it's the way you live. Maybe it's how you use your time. Maybe it's the use of finances. Maybe it's who you need to to share the gospel with. What do you sense God is calling you to adjust in your life right now in light of eternity? And then who are you praying for? Who are you just crying out to God that they will come to faith in Christ? 
And how will you seek to share the gospel with them? And then as you hear me say week by week, truth comes to us, not just for us, but so that it can go through us to other people. And so who can you share these truths with? And maybe it's just to have a discussion. Maybe it's to go deeper. Maybe it's to unpack some of these things. Maybe it's just to share this message, to share a link. Who can you share these truths with? None of us is guaranteed tomorrow. But if we're with Jesus Christ, if we are in Jesus Christ, we are guaranteed an eternity in his presence. I want you to know that hope. And I want myself and you to live every single day of our life, however many more we might have, in full assurance and for full boldness because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Thanks for joining us. God bless you.